Thanks for listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit cornerstonetulsa.org or find us on social media. We gather every Sunday at 9.30 and 11 o'clock and would love for you to join us. If we can do anything for you at all, please email us at hello at cornerstonetulsa.org. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. The teaching for the text today comes from Hosea chapter 11. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. They will neither harm nor destroy on my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nation will rally to him, and his resting place will be glorious. Let's say a prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your precious gift as we celebrate your resurrection today. Lord, I pray the Holy Spirit just descends upon us like a cloud covering us with your presence and filling us with the unquenchable desire to follow you, to walk with you, and to be your disciples. I pray that you fill John with your peace as he delivers your word. And Lord, open our ears, our hearts, our minds to what you have for us to hear today. And help us to move through this next week with the desire to be your servant and forgive us because we are weak. Mm. We love you in your precious and holy name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thanks, Patty. Y'all may be seated. Last week, last week, the world watched in amazement as Tiger Woods became the second oldest person in history to win the Masters Tournament. Was anybody excited about that? Pretty impressive. Golf fans are so polite. <laughs> Just a polite little clap for Tiger. It was a big deal because it was his, his second or his first major in 11 years to win. And is Scott Carpy here? Okay, my pal Scott Carpy is a golf professional at Southern Hills, and Scott said as soon as Tiger won, the phone in the pro shop started ringing off the hook with people who wanted to take lessons and who wanted to get back into playing. They're like, if Tiger can do it, then I can have my big break still. <laughs> and, and it was a big deal, you know, for Tiger to have won. He had some meaningful, like, physical uh, crises over those 11 years. He'd had some big knee and back issues. He tore his ACL and had to have reconstructive surgery. He uh, had to have a spinal fusion, and he was in so much pain, like he couldn't out of, get out of bed by himself for four to six months. He had to totally learn how to swing a golf club again. Uh, but, uh, so he had a lot of physical uh, challenges to overcome. But even more than the physical challenges, uh, Woods had some major personal crises. And there was one picture you may have seen a handful of years ago where in the middle of the night, Tiger Woods crashed into a tree. TMZ reported this. He had had a, a pretty rough night. Evidently, some of his infidelities had come public. His wife took a couple of golf clubs and just beat the, the car to smithereens, and he smashed into a tree. Uh, it, it led to a period of unwinding for him, a humiliating period as, as some of his behaviors came into uh, in the public spotlight. 
He checked into rehab to deal with some of those uh, addictive behaviors. He had public divorce proceedings. Uh, He lost sponsorships. Uh, It's like his whole world was crumbling in front of his eyes. And probably the lowest point of all was when he had a DUI and this mugshot was, was put out for all the world to see. It's a guy who had been on top of the world, you know, one of the winningest athletes in all of sports history, and all of a sudden his life crumbled before his eyes. He was dealt this kind of mortal wound that forever changed life as he knew it, forever changed life as he knew it. And so the sweetness of that victory came from the bitterness of 11 years of defeat and shame and embarrassment. And in a room size like this, there are people here who know what it's like to be dealt a mortal wound, to have something happen to you, an event, a setback, a choice, the choice of somebody else, a bit of news that forever changed life as you knew it. It could have been the day where you received uh, papers for divorce or filed them. It could have been a day you got a phone call and, and got a diagnosis and you remember where you were sitting when it happened. Or you remember when that family member or that friend came in and told you the news that would just crush you, a sense of betrayal or a loss of a friend, Uh, that that setback, that event, the the loss of, of, of something that was important to you like a job being terminated, a mortal wound. Something that happened to you that forever altered life as you knew it. Many of us remember where we were when the Oklahoma City bombing happened, and sometimes that was, that was very personal to people who lost friends and family members. Remember where we were when 9-11 happened? These moments that forever change life. You built your life up into this like mighty oak tree, and it's like somebody took an axe and just knocked you down, and you feel like you're left with a stump of an existence. And as, as we've been reading in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 11, thanks, Patty, for reading for us, uh, the prophet Isaiah, you know, God is speaking through him, describes the nation of Israel like a stump. They've been cut down. They had this glorious history, so many years and generations of God's faithfulness and promise leading up to this moment where they were leveled and they're looking down on their former glory and so humiliated with themselves. They'd started so well. Abram and Sarah, this married couple, God says, leave your land and go to the place that I'm going to show you. And there I'm going to make you into a great nation. Through your family, I'm going to bless all of the families of the earth. Abraham and Sarah are getting older. It's not until Sarah's 90 and Abraham's 100 that God makes them a family with children of their own. And they give birth to Isaac miraculously. And as each generation continues, God reiterates his promise to the people, through your family, through your offspring, I'm going to bless all of the families of the earth. You get to the third generation with Jacob, has 12 sons. Those sons uh, go down to Egypt. There they grow into a mighty nation. They become a nation within the nation of Egypt. The Egyptians become threatened and uh, subject them to 400 years of slavery. But God had made a promise to this family raised up a deliverer with Moses, led them out. God bore his arm against the the so-called gods of the Egyptians with the plagues and just putting them to shame and led them out, opened the sea. They walked through on dry ground. They went to the mountain of God, and there God revealed himself in smoke and fire, gave them the law. Uh, If you obey this, if you live according to this way, you're going to be unique among all the nations and show my glory to them. 
God leads them through the wilderness with a fire by day and cloud by night as they go into the land. God is literally fighting their enemies for them. God is doing the work. They're just cooperating. They have the law. They're given the land that had been promised for generations. Now it's theirs. They have the tabernacle, which is God's presence among them. But, but Solomon wanted to make it permanent and asked God, can I build you a temple? He said, sure thing. They build this glorious, monstrous temple. If you were to go and to see the foundation stones today, you'd still be awed at the size, even though the temple was ultimately destroyed. Uh, God gave them the land, the law, the temple, and more than anything else, there was this profound sense of God's blessing or favor. It's like on a day when you're running late and you, you keep hitting green lights, you're like, God must love me. <laughs> this is Israel for, for generations. The sense of God is just charging ahead of them, often in times of their ineptitude, and doing glorious things for them. But Israel is never content. Israel is always restless. Even though God has done amazing things for them, they've been accomplished as a people. God is fighting their battles. Their eyes are always looking to the other nations, comparing themselves, trying to line up. See, how are we doing with everybody else? There's this restless void in them that keeps them hungry and looking. It's kind of like Kevin Durant when he, uh, traveled, when he switched to the Golden State Warriors. I'm sorry if that's too soon for anybody. We're still grieving. But Durant goes to the Warriors. He wins a championship with the Warriors. And, and afterward, he's quoted as saying, after winning the championship last season, I learned that much hadn't changed. I thought it would fill a certain void, and it didn't. It's like, man, he's on the super team. He's winning the championship. He should be happy, but he's not. And for Israel, in spite of how God has blessed them so abundantly, they keep looking. And in looking, they see how the other nations worship, and they're drawn to the, the idol worship of the other nations, and it consumes them. And it takes them over, and God sends prophets to tell them, look, this is not going to end very well for you. This is going to end quite poorly. Please repent. Please turn. I don't, want to have, I don't want you to have to face the consequences of your actions. And yet they ignored God, and it resulted in exile. What took millennia and generations to build, this mighty oak tree would be chopped down into a stump. In 722 BC, the kingdom of Assyria, this violent kingdom, would come in and wipe out the ten tribes in the north of Israel and, and exile them back to Assyria, repopulate them. In 587, the kingdom of Babylon would come in and do the same thing to Judah and Jerusalem. They set fire to the city, destroyed the wall, destroyed the temple, and exiled its leadership. And the people of Israel and Judah find themselves living in a foreign land, in a hostile culture, ashamed of what they've done, looking back on, oh, we didn't heed God's warnings. We didn't pay attention to the law. And because they didn't pay attention to the law, they lost the land. They lost the city. They lost the temple. But, but there was just a deep sense they lost that favor that blessing that had led them up to this place. And here they are in exile, a bunch of washed-up has-beens looking back on their former glory. And to this nation of has-beens, of people who failed royally and spectacularly, God speaks a word of comfort through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 11, comparing them to this stump of a nation. It's Isaiah 11.1. 1. A word of comfort. God says, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, and from his roots a branch will bear fruit. 
You can picture the imagery of a tree that's been cut down, it's decaying, but a shoot of new life is growing. Jesse refers to the father of King David. He's making this, this announcement, God had promised David, I'm going to build your family line into an everlasting dynasty, and someone from your family line is always going to be before me on the throne. But David's family line has been cut. The kings have been destroyed because they've gone into exile, and yet God says, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, and a branch is going to bear fruit. And this branch is referred to with a capital B, and as as the prophet goes on, we see that this this branch, this shoot, is referred to as a singular male, verses 2 and 3. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might. The spirit of the knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. As the people began to walk back through their own history, wondering who is this shoot, who is this branch that's going to bear fruit and carry on the everlasting dynasty, and they look back to their kings and the good ones of, the, of a rotten bunch of apples. Well, could it be Hezekiah? Hezekiah was a good king. Could it have been him? Well, no, because he died and his heirs were horrible after him. Well, how about Josiah? Josiah was amazing, rid the land of idols. Well, he was great, but he died and his heirs were terrible. And the people wondered and they waited, who is this shoot from the stump of Jesse? Who is the branch that will bear fruit? And in their exile and in their imagination, they began to call back to mind other promises of God, remembering in every generation, God had spoken to the people of a promised deliverer, Messiah, who was to come. They went back to God's promises to Eve who said, "Uh, you're going to have an offspring who will crush the head of the serpent who first deceived you, but himself, he's going to be wounded in the process. Maybe this offspring of Eve is the same branch in the shoot. They remembered the, the words through Moses that God was going to raise up another prophet like Moses to whom the people must listen. They remember the promise to Judah, the son of Jacob, that there would be a king from his family and the obedience of the nations would be his. Maybe the shoot is the offspring of Eve and the prophet like Moses and the king from the family of Judah. And they remember the the promises of God given through Isaiah of a child who was to be born. And they'll call him Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The government would be on his shoulders and they waited and they wondered for the mystery of God to be revealed. For hundreds of years, the mystery lingered, and the people waited, and they wondered how in the fullness of time God would make his plan known. This theologian named Thomas Oden said, Through Christ, all the other moments of divine disclosure become more understandable. All of God's other manifestations, past and future, become better received, remembered, and clarified. In the light of Christ, all previous revelation through the history of Israel and the nations becomes increasingly meaningful. Christ is the one whom the angels have longed to see, the desire of all nations, the goal toward which all the history of revelation prior to Christ had been pointing. In Christ, the eternal purposes of God, the mystery hidden for ages, the one secret of God is revealed. Christ is a single truth, plural in meaning. Christ is the sum and the hidden interior meaning of all other genuine revelations of God. In Christ, all who behold attentively are able to grasp God's secret, and that secret is Christ himself. 
In him lie hidden all God's treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And even as Christ became for Christians the inner meaning of the Old Testament history, so does the Old Testament history bestow otherwise hidden meaning upon Christ. Jesus did not come to destroy but to fulfill the promises of God through the law and the prophets. In the fullness of time, God's secret is revealed in the person of Jesus Christ who inherits all of the promises but also all of the pain of Israel. He's the shoot that would come from the stump of Jesse, the one that begins to emerge. And from Israel's mortal wound, Jesus gains wisdom. Remembering their failures, remembering their idolatry, Jesus learned and listened and submitted to the will of his Father. As a child, he went to the temple and he sat at the feet of the great teachers. And Luke tells us he grew in wisdom and in knowledge and in favor with God and man. From the wounds of Israel, Jesus gained wisdom. Like Israel and like us, he was tempted in every way, and yet he didn't sin. When he was pressured in the garden to take a shortcut by the serpent, pressured in the garden to take a shortcut, to to not follow the hard path, Jesus refused to give in. He said, Father, if you're willing, let this cup pass from me, yet not my will, but your will be done. He's doing the opposite of Adam and Eve in the garden. He's the new Adam. And his struggle in the garden was anticipation of another uh, prophecy about him, one that he knew that he'd warned his disciples about, but they didn't fully understand. Isaiah 53, surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering And yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. His disciples had been all geared up and following Jesus, but he died just like every other would-be Messiah. We considered him punished. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds were healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own ways, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So Jesus came, the heir of Israel. He was not honored, was humiliated, was not revered, was reviled, was insulted, humiliated, suffered, uh, crucified, and all his failure born in front of the whole people. They felt like this is his greatest moment of defeat. But he was humiliated and suffered and went to the cross for us. And now we have one in heaven who's familiar with sorrow and suffering and betrayal. We have one who can empathize with us when we're in those moments. But Jesus did not only come as a kind of divine empathizer, though he is certainly that. The author of Hebrews calls him a great high priest who has mercy on us because like us, he was tempted in every way and yet without sin. He's not only a divine empathizer who can empathize with us in our suffering and our grief and our loss and our heartache over death. He's not only like this Johnny Cash-esque man in black who's standing up on the cross to remind us of the sorrow and the brokenness of the world. He's so much more. He came not only to be conquered uh, on the cross, but to conquer through the cross, to confront all of those forces that led humanity to that moment where we would kill our God, where the high priest representing the people would say, crucify him, crucify him. Let his blood be on us and our children. The forces at work that could corrupt a heart to kill its God 
Uh, he confronted and conquered that through the cross and through his resurrection. And that's precisely what uh, the cross and the resurrection are all about, confronting the forces of sin that have spoiled humanity and confronting our worst enemy that to this day continues to plague us, which is death, which is what Paul got at in 1 Corinthians 15, talking about resurrection, what it's all about, and why it is so central to everything that we believe. He said, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, your faith is futile. You have a bad hobby. You're still in your sins, too. The thing that you've been struggling with, that hang-up that is ruining your relationships, that's ruining your private life, you are, you are condemned to live with that forever if Christ hasn't been raised from the dead. And how about those people who've fallen asleep in Christ, those people who gave their lives trusting Him, but now they're in a grave somewhere? If Christ hasn't been raised from the dead, pity them. If Jesus hasn't been raised from the dead, Paul says, then we are of all people most to be pitied, the most deplorable, despicable, sad lot. But then he hastens to add, but Christ has been raised from the dead. The implications of this, if, if Christ hasn't been raised, you're still in your sin. Well, if Christ has been raised, then there's the possibility of victory and freedom from your sin. If Jesus has not been raised from the dead, then those who are asleep in him are forever lost. But since Christ has been raised from the dead, death is not the final victory. Death does not have the last word in the matter because Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. There's liberation. We can become new people. Romans 8.1, there's now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You can become a new man, a new woman, victory over our sins through the person of Jesus Christ. Creation is groaning and waiting for this victory to be fully realized in all the earth when the dead are raised just like Jesus was and our bodies are transformed and the heavens and the earth which are groaning for renewal will finally be satisfied when Christ returns. Christian belief in resurrection is not like head-in-the-sand optimism. Christian belief in resurrection is not about the power of positive thinking. Christian, Christian resurrection theology anchored in an act in history that forever changed the course of human history. Christian belief in resurrection is an anchored hope that, that fills our worldview, permeates our worldview with light, with optimism, with hope. Because one guy was raised from the dead in the middle of history, we look forward to the day when all who are in Christ will be raised. And this whole power system of death and sin and oppression will be toppled. This is not the power of positive thinking, keeping our head in the sand and just pretending life as we know it is great. It's not. But because of the resurrection, we can say it's not yet. Wishful thinking says, man, I really wish things could turn around. Wouldn't that be great? But hope is anchored in objective realities, and we have the objective reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Just as Jesus was brought to life after death, so those who sleep in Christ can count on the resurrection of our bodies. Just as Jesus was, was dead and died for our sins, so we can count ourselves dead to sin and alive to Christ. This resurrection theology gives us purpose, gives us perspective, gives us endurance in the middle of suffering, and gives us a reason for living. And it was the actual resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and not some kind of uh, like, like happy, let's just remember what a great guy he was kind of thing. It was actual belief in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead 
based on the appearances after his resurrection to the disciples and 500 others that changed the course of human history and enabled the early church and people even today to suffer for his name. Even this morning, there was a bomb that went off in a church in Sri Lanka, and people who've gathered just like we've gathered have died in belief of the, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. There are hundreds and thousands of men and women all around the world and all throughout history who have borne that name with honor. Women like Perpetua and Felicity, who in the year 203 AD were living in the North African city of Carthage, and when they converted to Christianity, they were arrested by the Roman Empire. Perpetua was a wealthy uh, woman, came from a pagan family, a prominent pagan family, and Felicity was her servant girl. But they counted themselves not as master and slave, but as sisters in Christ. And Perpetua and Felicity were thrown into a prison underneath a Roman Colosseum, and there Perpetua's father came to him. The man who was a pagan said, please renounce Christ. You don't have to go like this. She says, I can't be known by anything other than what I am, and what I am is a Christian. She was a mom, too. She gave her, her child to her sister. Felicity, her servant, was pregnant at the time and pretty far along in her pregnancy. And, and Felicity was so afraid that because of her pregnancy, they wouldn't send her into the arena. She wanted the honor to die as a martyr for Jesus. And so Felicity and the church began to pray that she would give birth in the prison. And God answered their prayer. And Felicity in that, n that nasty Roman prison underneath a Colosseum where in, in only a while certainly Perpetua would be, would be let out and wild animals would attack her. Felicity is giving birth in that prison and crying out in pain as her child is coming into the world. And another prisoner began to taunt her thinking, you think you're in pain now. How on earth will you endure the pain of the arena above? And Felicity, with all the poise that can only come from the Holy Spirit, said, It is I who suffer now, but there will be someone in me, in the arena, who will suffer with me, because I will be suffering for him. Felicity gives birth to her child who is given to the church. And when the day comes for Perpetua and Felicity to enter the arena, they are dressed as well as they can. They've done their hair. They want to come into this moment poised and dignified. They walk into the middle of the arena, and there the multitudes are taunting them and laughing at them. Look at these Christian idiots. They release a wild heifer that goes in and maims both of the women, but doesn't kill them. They restrain the animal and take it back, and they think, we're going to kill them more directly. The women help each other up after their woundedness. They, they get their clothes in order. They get their hair back in order. They are totally in control in the moment. The sisters in Christ are, are locked in hands, and the executioner comes forward with sword in hand, knowing what he's about to do. He's the one in charge, but he's the one trembling, seeing the radiant beauty and the joy of these women. And before the executioner pulls back the sword to slay them, they call out to the church, stand fast in the faith and love one another. There they were slain and their bodies uh, fell down in the arena. Their blood was spilled. But everyone knew on that day they were the victors even though they had died. 
people don't do stuff like that for a memory of a guy who was pretty good. People do stuff like that because their whole person is anchored in hope of a bigger story that's at work, initiated by the resurrection of Jesus, who took an icon like this of failure and public shame and turned it into something beautiful that we'd wear around our neck as a necklace. They were anchored in the reality of the resurrection of Jesus, which gave them the ability to transcend very real threats and suffering and grief. And it's the, it's the resurrection that enables us to endure amid horrible, horrible things. And it's this resurrection and the fact of it in the middle of history that continues to encourage and enable us to follow Jesus in a world that doesn't understand him. Increasingly, like the crowds calling us idiots because we're just memorializing some guy who died 2,000 years ago. But we believe that there's a larger story at work. Jesus did come. He suffered. He was ashamed. He knew that mortal wound. If you suffer if you know what it's like to, to be on the other side of that news and you are limping for the rest of your life as a result of that, you have a friend in Jesus who dealt with his own mortal wound. If you're going through hell and you feel like you don't have the ability to endure good news, he's been there too. And if you are longing for resurrection, days like this can be bittersweet for those of us who have known dear loss. We grieve we long for the day that he returns, but we grieve with hope because as he was raised, so we will be raised. Hope infuses our worldview with resurrection, and it changes everything. This is the good news that we celebrate Easter Sunday. It has nothing to do with eggs or rabbits. It has nothing to do with just a, a cheerful, let's just all pretend to be positive as if the world's great. It's not yet, but yet is the key word. Just as Jesus died and was raised, so we look forward to our resurrection and the renewal of all things when Christ returns. This is the hope that anchors our life, that gives a foundation for us to live, gives us the hope to carry on when it feels like we will never recover from the wounds that have been dealt to us. And if you're suffering, if you're going through hell, if you're beaten up, hear the good news. Christ has died. Christ has risen. And Christ will come again. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord Jesus, uh, that, that you love us. That in these moments, uh, we're not praying alone. We're not soliloquying by ourselves. You hear our voice. You take our measly prayers as you intercede for us, the right hand of your Father. You change them and turn them into something beautiful. And plead for us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that even in this moment as we gather in your name, you're here. Remember how the disciples were gathered and afraid after the crucifixion, and behind that locked door you appeared. Behind these doors of the church and the company of the saints, you appear. You are with us. As we gather around the table, I pray that this meal would not be for us something that's just a feel-good memorial, but it would be something so much more than us. Pour out your Holy Spirit on us gathered here, on this bread, on this juice. Make it be for us the body and the blood of Christ, so that we may be for the world the body of Christ redeemed by his blood. Nourish us, Lord Jesus. Encourage us, Lord Jesus. Anchor our hearts in hope, Lord Jesus, because there is so much cause for despair. We know how to grieve. We know how to mourn. This day, Lord Jesus, would you teach us how to hope and how to celebrate. So we wait for your coming. 
In his name we pray. Amen.